Well, so good to be with you guys uh, tonight. If you're new or you're visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm the downtown pastor, one of our elders here at the Austin Stone. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 will be there in just, actually pretty quickly. Um, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter for some time now. We have a lot to get through tonight, so I, I want to cut to the chase and tell you already from the very beginning, before we read the text, what the point of the sermon is tonight. What the point of the text is today. Here's the main point before we read 1 Peter 3. Here's the main point. So if you want to know where are we going, what are we covering, here's the main point. That Christians bless others in ways no one else can because we've been blessed by God in ways no one else has. That's the main point. From this text, you're going to see, and we're going to cover the first part of that really quickly, that Christians... Bless others when no one else can, and we're spending most of our time on the second part of that sentence, because we have been blessed in ways no one else has. So let's go ahead and read 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12, and this is the word of God. It says this, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, And his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That Christians bless others in ways no one else can because we've been blessed by God in ways no one else has. So let's look at the first part of that, verse 8. Verse 8 says, finally, all of you. Why does he say finally, all of you? He's not ending the letter. There's two more chapters to go in this letter. He's saying finally because he's ending a section where he's been teaching Christians. We've been covering this. How do we relate in various relationships? He's been talking about, okay, here's how you operate as citizens, as employees, as wives, as husbands. He's been communicating to us, this is how you honor God and you submit to others in all of these different relationships. But then he says, and finally, in summation, all of you, all the church. So maybe you're not a wife, maybe you're not a husband, but now I'm talking to all of you. And remember, he's talking to a group of people who are going through persecution and suffering. This letter was written to people who were going through persecution and suffering. And Peter's saying, all of you, even when times are difficult, all of you love one another. He says, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He's saying, even when stress is high in the church, our highest aim and value is love for each other. That you don't and I don't, because we're stressed out, get to see that as optional. That if we're struggling, we don't have to serve other people. We need more time for ourselves. He's saying war against that. Fight against that. Love one another. Because repeatedly in the scriptures, God makes it very clear. Love and faithfulness to him, one of the primary ways you see that is love and faithfulness to his people. So we could cover these qualities in great detail, but we'll be very brief on them tonight for the sake of time. But he says unity of mind. He means 
in your relationships with other Christians value unity and commonality and a shared experience in life with other people more than your own personal preferences and desires and whims. He says sympathy. He says work to understand what someone else is going through and, and feel what they feel instead of immediately comparing it to yourself. So often we hear people's struggles and we think, oh, that's funny, that reminds me of me. And we talk about ourselves. He's saying have sympathy for one another. Brotherly love. Have a sibling-like commitment to the other Christians in this church because you are more permanently tied to your brothers and sisters in Christ than you are your brothers and sisters of your biological family. We'll be bound together forever. It says commit and do good to each other instead of having rivalry and competition. Tender-hearted. Be sensitive towards the needs of other people. Let yourself be affected by other people. Don't be cold and distant. And lastly, a humble mind. A humble mind, a humble mind assumes you have limitations, assumes you have weaknesses. A humble mind seeks to learn about people before you make assessments about them. Before you judge them on surface level understanding of them, you seek to understand. Now, we could spend so, an entire sermon on just those qualities. But for the sake of time, I want you to know But that's the overview, that's the standard for us. That's the standard for love in the church. It's not just be nice to each other generally, don't yell at each other, don't be mean to each other, make sure to point, uh, put an exclamation point on the end of all your text so they know you're happy and you like them, smiley face emoji so they know. No, the standard's higher than that. The standard is no matter how difficult times may be, don't justify elevating yourself over your brothers and sisters. Don't justify putting yourself first. Though things are scarce, though energy and emotions and sometimes money and time are scarce, don't justify separating and dismissing your brothers and sisters. That could be all we could think about tonight and that would be enough. But then Peter in the next verse, take, in this verse takes it a step further. Verse nine, he says, so verse eight says, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Then he says, verse nine, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. We hit this a couple of weeks ago, but it bears repeating. Not only do we love other Christians, not only do we bless other Christians, we even bless those who revile us. He says when someone demeans you, when someone belittle you, belittles you, you don't match their response. You don't match their response. You don't mirror their behavior. The natural human tendency is when someone treats you a certain way, it's for you to reflect and mirror them. So if they're good and kind to you, then you naturally find yourself reflecting back to them goodness, kindness. If they're mean and rude to you, you find yourself naturally reflecting being a mirror to their behavior. They cut you off in traffic, you drive by and cut them off in traffic. Right, well, what's going on? What, I mean, sometimes we don't even think about it. What's going on is your flesh, your sin, wants them to experience how they made you feel. You wanted them to have a taste of their own medicine. You made me feel this way, so you're gonna feel this way. And God tells his people, the way you get even with those who revile you is by blessing them. That's the way you get even. You don't respond to them and mirror them, you, res you respond by mirroring your Father in heaven. You reflect him. So you absorb that evil, that reviling, and you respond in encouragement and kindness and blessing. 
you go so far as wanting good and blessing for your enemies. This is what Jesus said. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is the Christian response. Now, the question has to become, well then how is it possible to do that? Right? How, how, how are Christians able to bless others in these ways that no one else wants to? How are we able to do this? Because if you think about this, maybe you could foresee loving people this way, loving the church this way, blessing those who revile you this way every now and then, but as a consistent lifestyle, that feels impossible, at least it does to me. And it would be impossible, and all obedience to God would be impossible if he didn't make for you very great promises. If he didn't make for you very great promises. Because listen, God never motivates you to obey simply by saying, obey me or else. He never comes to his people and just says, obey me or else. And even in this instance, he says, Obey me because there is superior blessing with me. I'm not sure where you are in your Christian life, Christian faith, your, your journey, but I want you to know that the Christian life is not about forsaking joy. It's not about forsaking reward. It's not about forsaking blessing. It's about choosing a superior one. It's about choosing a longer lasting one. It's about noticing what sin is, is that it gives this immediate joy and happiness, but it fades really quickly, and over time, it's fleeting. It's about choosing a superior blessing and joy for yourself, because listen, you can't turn off your desire to want to be content. You can't turn off your desire to want to be blessed, to want to be happy, to want to be satisfied. God made you that way, and Peter knows this. So Peter roots your obedience to blessing those who revile you and loving one another in your, the blessing you've received. Look at verse nine. He says, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for uh, reviling, but on the contrary, blessed. Now why? For to this you were called. You were called to this. That you may obtain a blessing. You've been called to bless those who curse you so that you can enjoy the blessing God has given to you in Jesus. You've been called to trust Jesus, but also you've been called to follow his example. Peter uses the exact same phrase up in chapter two, verse 20 and 21. He says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this doing good and suffering is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now verse 21, the same exact phrase, for to this you have been called. You've been called to do good even if it costs you, why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And what are those steps? Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. So Jesus gave his life for you to bring you back to God, yes, but also to leave you an example. So I want you to know as you follow Jesus in this life, what, what did that text say? He suffered for you, and we talk about that a lot in the church, how Jesus suffered on our behalf, and he did. But another theme in the New Testament, so often found in the New Testament, but not talked about in our church very much, is how to follow Jesus also means you'll share in his sufferings. That the way of following Jesus means if you wanna share in the rewards and the blessings of knowing him, you also have to share in his sufferings. You also share in doing good and being misunderstood 
and being mistreated like him. Because what did Jesus show us? He entrusted himself to God by doing what? By doing good to others even when it cost him his life. And he said, this is the way to blessing. But when his body laid lifeless in a tomb for three days, it sure seemed like his whole concept and notion of blessing was a dead end. But when he was dead, it sure seemed like to the the disciples, this whole idea of the kingdom of God and being blessed in it is gone. Because when you bless others as they crucify you, it doesn't seem to work out for you. But then God raised him from the dead. And we say that so often in this church and we can forget how incredible that is. God raised him from the dead. Never to die again with a name above every other name, all authority in heaven and on earth is now his. And what does the resurrection of Jesus do? It is God communicating to everyone that he blesses those who trust him. It's communicating to everyone that Jesus' life is the way to blessing even when it costs, even when it means death, but even death cannot stop God from blessing those who trust in his son. The resurrection is proof that there is superior joy and blessing with God because nothing can stamp it out, not even death. See, Jesus' life, it turns what it means to be blessed upside down. His life turns what it means to be blessed upside down. He shows us that the way to joy and the way to glory is not up, but down. You don't, listen, you don't possess blessing through strength, through might, through wealth, through power, through physical pleasures. How do you possess it? Through weakness, through spiritual pursuit, through meekness. This is one of the most fundamental and radical claims of Jesus. This isn't a a teaching on the periphery of his ministry, it's central. In the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with a list of attitudes, they're called the Beatitudes, the blessed attitudes. Listen to what he says. He says, in the very first sermon recorded, he says, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those the world tends to crush and ridicule, Jesus sees them and says, no, those people are blessed. He says it's the poor in spirit, not the self-assured who possess the kingdom of God. It's those who mourn, not those who laugh with not a care in the world. It's those who are meek, not those who get their way all the time. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not those who thirst for more possessions and pleasures. And he goes on and on. He lists all these different attributes that the world looks at and says, if you go after that, you're going to get trampled on in this life. If you go after that, you're going to be miserable. And Jesus looks at it and says, no, no, that's where blessing is found. See, God never says, hey, don't worry about being happy. Don't worry about joy. Don't worry about satisfaction. Don't you dare worry about blessing. Just obey me. No, he always says, no, I want you to be blessed. I want higher, deeper, longer lasting joy and blessing for you that you know what to do with. That's what he's after. That's what Peter's after in this text. And then he doubles down on this point 
by quoting Psalm 34. By, he shows us what the example of Jesus we follow. So verse 10, he says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, you can stop right there. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Is there anyone who doesn't want that? Anyone in here like, I'd love to hate life and have bad days, please, thank you very much. Like anyone who want that? Of course not. Of course not, we're all after that. Everyone you know, regardless of what they believe, is after that. But then the question becomes, well then how do you get it? Well, David in this psalm says basically the same thing Peter says about blessing and doing good. Look at verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, what do you do? Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So if someone is evil and deceives you, don't do it back to them. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, even if that person declares war on you. He's saying basically basically the same thing Peter said. And Peter's quoting the Psalms to show us that in the Old Testament and the New, the way to blessing has always been found in faithfulness to God and doing good to others. That's always been the path. But here's where there's a very important distinction. The biblical definition of blessing is very different from the world's definition of blessing. See, blessing for the world has nothing to do with God and everything everything to do with self. It's about comfort and ease and success and health and wealth and family and material possessions and so on and so forth. And listen, this is to be expected because they don't know God. That's to be expected. But what is even more troubling is how so many people who claim the name of Jesus are after the same things as the world, as their goal and their aim in life, they're just using God to get it. The popular level name for this is the prosperity gospel. You've probably heard that term before. The prosperity gospel, it's all, it's these eloquent and charismatic communicators who say, whether explicitly or implicitly, they say, if you obey God rightly and you trust in him enough, then you'll have nothing but health and wealth and happiness and success in everything. They're after the same thing the world is after, the same goals, the same ends. They just wanna feel spiritual and religious along the way because it turns out you can make way more money for yourself and prey on poor people more easily if you appeal to God. But church, I, I need you to be warned right here. I need you to be warned because while the prosperity gospel lurks out there deceiving and devouring people, I want you to know the prosperity gospel also lurks in here. It also lurks in your own heart. More than you realize probably than you like to admit, there are little prosperity gospels you're believing, things you're secretly hoping that if I obey God, he will give to me. And maybe your thing, maybe what you're hoping is not money. Maybe you don't attach faithfulness to God with wealth. Maybe it's because you already have wealth. But maybe it's marriage. Maybe secretly you have this thought, this desire, if I'm faithful to God, surely he'll give me a spouse. And surely he'll give me children. And surely that me and that spouse will have an incredible marriage and surely my children will love me all of my days. They'll follow me all of my days and 
For those, for those of us who have kids in this room, we know that's not always gonna happen. Maybe it's not family. Maybe it's professional success. Maybe it's success in school. If I obey God, surely he'll give me the education I want, the job that I want, the promotion that I want. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the respect of other people. Maybe it's the respect of your family. It could be all sorts of things, but you've got to know that you and I are tempted with the exact same sin of those false teachers and those deceived believers in the prosperity gospel. We are constantly tempted to love God's gifts more than God himself. Constantly bombarded to use him to get what we're really after. So we find ourselves saying, maybe not out loud, but acting and saying, I'll be faithful and I'll be good so long as God delivers what I'm after. I'll be diligent. I'll read my Bible. I'll go to church. I'll even give money, but he better come through. And you don't know you're doing that until he withholds the thing that you want. Until he withholds the thing that you want and you find yourself getting frustrated and going, okay, my timeline's off, he better come through. Or then he takes away the thing that you love, the thing that you're after, and you find yourself genuinely wondering, then what's the point? Why do I need him if he's not going to be the butler I want him to be to go fetch the things that I'm after? You have to know that you and I are so susceptible and vulnerable to this sin. Now understand something clearly. The biblical definition of blessing doesn't diminish God's gifts. Okay, don't overreact and overcorrect on this and think, okay, well, all those things are bad and they're evil. That's not true. Things like family and health and success, these things are really good things. They're gifts from God himself. But the point is this, they're not ultimate. That at the center of a blessed life is not God's gifts, it's God himself. The center of a blessed life, a truly blessed life, is God himself. It's knowing and it's loving, and it's delighting, and it's following God. It's about him. He's the beginning, he's the end, he's the treasure. So if he withholds things from you, he hasn't removed blessing from you. If he takes things away from you, and you're going through suffering and loss, it doesn't mean you're not blessed by God. No matter what a false teacher may try to tell you, it's not because if you just had more faith, you'd always have physical blessings in your life. That's not true, because God says, the greatest blessing I could give to you is me. He's the greatest reward. He's the greatest treasure. And hear this. So many of you are young in the faith and new to the faith, It's important you understand this, that one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian, one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian from a spiritual or religious person is not that a Christian believes in God and respects Jesus. Plenty of religious people and spiritual people believe in God and respect Jesus. One of the fundamental differences is that a Christian finds God himself supremely in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that a Christian finds God himself more satisfying than all of his gifts. A Christian finds God more satisfying than all of his gifts. A spiritual and religious person can't say that. A true believer finds God beautiful 
enjoyable for who he is, a spiritual and religious person finds God useful. He's useful. And as much as he gets me the thing that I want, he is useful. And this command to bless those who revile you, it shows, it reveals in us what we're really after. Because the only reason God is saying, the only reason you would want to live this way, the only way this life could be called blessed as people revile you and persecute you because of your allegiance to Jesus is if you really believe God is better than everything. Because the motivation in this text is saying, walk this path of blessing because God will be with you in it. Verse 10 through 12, again, it says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? Why do that when people are going against you? Why do that when people in the church hurt you? Why keep loving? For, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. He says, this way of serving and losing for the sake of other people, is blessed. Why? Because God sees you. God's not distant. God hears your cries and your prayers. Simply put, it is a blessed way to live because it pleases our God. It brings joy and honor and delight to him. And Christians love God over everything. And we know the most satisfying life I could live is one that God finds pleasing is one that God finds pleasing. Now listen, you can't out his grace, you can't undo what he's done in Christ, but your sin does affect you. Your sin will blur your vision of God, your sin will numb you to his presence. And genuine believers don't hate their sin because of the consequences. We hate our sin because it dishonors and it displeases God. That's why we hate it. If you only hate sin because of the consequences, you may not love God as much as you think that you do. And this is why we would and we should hate those sins that we don't see affecting anybody. So often, we, when I, we'll talk about sin to people in this church, you'll, and you've, hear, you've heard this rhetoric, people will say, well, why does God care so much about this? It's not hurting anyone. Why does he care? This thing that I'm doing, it affects Nobody. And that's where you'd be wrong. No, it does affect God. It does displease and dishonor him, and that's why it brings sorrow to those who find him valuable. Even if my sin and your sin never hurt another person in ways we could see, it would still cause sorrow in our hearts because it dishonored our God. Because it's all about him. And the world can't understand that sort of thinking because they've never known the joys of walking in his word according to his ways. They, they can't understand why would you obey even when it costs you? Why would you keep obeying even though he took so many things from you already? You're going through suffering. Look at your life. Do you feel blessed? And Christians can go, even in the darkest moments, I know I have better blessing with God because he will prove strong and faithful and secure when everything else fades. I want you to know everything in this life that the world calls blessed will eventually let you down and won't satisfy you the way it used to. Eventually. This is why I love older saints in the church and in our church 
have been following Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years. They know this all too well. They have seen things let them down. When you're young, you don't think it ever happened to you. When you're young, it's easy to believe, no, this thing I'm after, this career path, this person, this way of thinking, it'll never let me down. You get married and you're 22 years old and you're thinking, babe, we're gonna be great forever, happiness forever. And every couple who's been married is like, seeing counseling in five years. Like, and, and like, because we know. The more life that you live, this is why the older you get, the more easy it is to be cynical. Why? Because the things you trusted and let you down. They let you down. And if you find your contentment and your worth and your meaning in things like your health, family or work or sex or money or so on, when that thing is taken from you, you will have nothing left. You will have nothing left. And eventually in this life, all those things get taken from you or they don't satisfy the way they used to. You're gonna get them and wonder why am I still so unhappy? Because they can't carry you. They can't carry the weight of your desires, only God can. And this is why, by the way, we care so much about our friends and our family members who don't know Christ. We care about them not because we're scared of them or we're in competition for them over the future of a country or a people or anything like that. We love them and we want them to know. And I want you to know if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know. We just know from experience and from God's word that eventually if you find your identity and worth and meaning and purpose in anything other than God, I'm telling you eventually you're gonna be left wanting. Eventually it's going to come up short and what Christians are trusting in and have experienced is that through Jesus though, even in the most difficult and dark times, we have access to love and hope and meaning and mercy and comfort because God will never be taken from us. And he's the best blessing we could receive. So here's the question, how do you know? How do you know if you love God more than his gifts? How can you know if you have a blessed life? Well, let me say this, this should not be the last time you ask yourself these questions. It should be a pattern of your life to assess this in your life. Your joy and your satisfaction hinges on it. But when you ask yourself this question, do I love God more than his gifts, don't settle for a surface answer. Don't settle for an intellectual understanding that God is more satisfying than everything else. Just because you've read a book by John Piper or Francis Chan doesn't mean you understand this. That means you under, that they understood it and you read how they understood it, not that you've internalized it. And you have to know, if you're a Christian, Hebrews 2 says, even for Christians, your natural drift is in this life still away from God. That your natural drift is like you out in the ocean and God's on the beach. Your natural tendency is if you're not paying attention to where he is, you're naturally gonna find yourself like the tide moving you over this way. You look up and he's all the way over there. If you're not consciously pursuing him, you will drift from him. And the state of your heart that's most important is how it is right now. The state of your heart that's most important is how it is right now. Not how it was a year ago, not how it was in summer at the camp, it's how it is right now. Not how it will be, like one day I'll get better, God, one day when life gets less busy, I'll really get proactive about you and I'll make you a passion and priority in my life. No, most important state of your heart is right now. Because Joy is one of those things that past joy doesn't satisfy even close like current joy. When you're sad, 
no matter how much you may have been happy in the past, it can't help you now. The most important state of your heart is now. So let me give you a couple of questions to assess it. Here's a question. When was the last time you were convinced that God was more satisfying than all of his gifts? Like when was the last time on your own, not in theory, but in experience and in practice, when you had that moment where you were convinced God is more satisfying than everything else? And the further back that moment was from today, the more concerned you should be. Next question, do you think about God? You think about a lot of things. Do you think about them? When you're at school, when you're on campus, when you're at work, do you think about them? Because you're doing work, maybe you're studying something and he comes to mind. Does he ever come to mind? And when he does, when he comes to mind, what emotion or attitude is associated with him? So when he comes to mind, do you feel immediately guilty? Do you feel sorrowful? Do you feel excited? Do you feel happy? Do you feel stressed? Do you feel anxious? What is the emotion that's attached to your thoughts about God? Do you orient your life around him? Do you proactively think, I want my life to orient around God and his values and his mission? When was the last time you consciously picked his way and his word over your way and your word? Like when you thought to yourself, I want to do this thing and I know what God's word says, so I'm gonna choose him over me. And it can be even small things and oftentimes obedience looks much messier than we realize. Like this happened to me literally last night. Last night uh, we had a fire going because we live in Texas and it was under 70, so we start a fireplace, right? If you're new to Texas, that's what we do. That's why everyone's wearing layers today and sweating profusely. It's like I gotta wear this jacket sometime, right? Like that's how this works. And we had a fire going last night, and obviously, fire's hot, my kids are learning this, and where the fire was, the fireplace, there's this, this, below it, there's this piece of black metal that's insanely hot because it's close to the fire, and my six-year-old daughter was putting her feet right here, right there, right next to it, and I go, hey, L, will you stop? Foot there. Hey, L, will you stop? Foot there. L, babe, please, will you stop? Foot there. L, please, please, stop. And then I had this moment where my flesh said, Destroy her, that's what my flesh said. My flesh is like, okay, only option is very succinctly, destroy, that's what you should do. I had the feeling, I had the sensation of destroy your daughter, okay? And then, don't judge me, and then I thought, oh, there's a verse for this. Pretty simple one, it says, fathers, don't exasperate your children even though you'll want to, des to destroy them at times. I added the last part, but it says, don't exasperate your children. So I had this moment of, I want to scream and yell at her. I know that wouldn't help, so I'm going to choose God's way. So I said, hey, L, baby, honey, if you do that again, daddy's gonna lose his mind, so don't please, or I'll destroy you. And now, was that the most pure way of obeying God? No, but that was me constantly saying, I don't know how to do this right now before she burns her foot off, but I wanna follow God's word. So I actively said, I'm choosing his way over what my natural impulse is. Even if obedience is messy, when was the last time you consciously chose his way and his word? Now, when you do this, because I mean, that's one good parenting example. I could give you a hundred terrible ones from my life. When you do this exercise, it's a terrifying experience because as Christians, you know what the answer should be. You know the answer should be, well, I think about them all the time. 
not every second of every day, I have things that I'm doing, but I think about him and it fills me with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving and life and hope. And even when times are tough, I run to him in prayer and his word and all of my life and relationships and dreams and money and plans are all my bank account is ordered around him and his people and his mission. You know the right answer. But then you assess your actual thinking and feeling and acting and there's this massive disconnect, right? You find so often we can say with our mouths that God is my greatest treasure. And then you look at your life and it's all you do is spend your time fretting over acquiring and keeping his gifts. We spend all so much of our lives fretting over acquiring and keeping his gifts. We rarely obsess over loving other people. We rarely obsess over loving other people. We often obsess over getting that promotion, getting that grade, getting that gadget. We're rarely terrified of our sin and terrified it's gonna lull us to sleep and numb our love to God and choke out our faith. But we are terrified of physical pain and the disapproval of other people and not amounting to much in this life and proving that person who said we'd never amount to anything right. We are incredibly discontent people. We find ways for being one of the richest groups of people in the history of the world, we find ways to be discontent, but we are strangely content about our level of sacrifice and generosity for the kingdom of God. We're strangely content with, oh, what I'm doing and giving is great. The main thing is God needs to give me more of this, this, and this. See, we can say all day we love God most, but what you worry about, what you daydream about, what you're anxious about, what you're fearful of, what your joys are over, what your schedule says, what your bank account statement says, those things show you and me that so often we're believing prosperity gospels more than we realize. That we're genuinely saying with our mouths we want God, but really we're after his gifts. And as soon as we don't get the gift, we start being unfaithful to him. And what happens when, when we as Christians realize this, we tend to struggle to actually admit it. Like we like to think that the reason I sin is because of my circumstances, but you begin to realize, no, the reason that I've sinned and not trust him the way that I do is because I genuinely don't love him very much right now. I genuinely don't find him satisfying right now. I can't say honestly that he is more satisfying this to me and more delightful to me than anything else. I honestly can't say that. Well, then Christians are terrified to admit that because we think, if I say I don't love God very much, does that mean I'm not a Christian anymore? Because we think to be a Christian is to love God supremely. Now, that's an evidence of being a Christian. But in those moments when you realize your heart is further from him than you like to admit, you have to remember, wait, why does God love me in the first place? Why is he for me? Why is he resolved to do good to me? And you have to, in that moment, remember his love and his strength and his zeal to do good to you was never dependent on you. It never relied on you. That even though your love for him goes up, up and down, it waxes and wanes, it ebbs and flows, his love for you never tires, never runs out. He never loved you because you loved him. He never loved you because you loved him. 
He loved you because he wanted to. You didn't force his hand with your obedience. He loved you. That's why he sent his son for you. Why? So he could secure you for him. Even when you were faithless, he'd be faithful. And so that frees you up as a Christian, to be honest. When you don't love God that much, when you don't find him satisfying, not to stay in that place, but to remember, what's the bedrock of my relationship with God? It's his love for me, not my love for him. That's what makes him unbelievable, is he's not needy. He doesn't need you. He wants you. Everything else in this life needs you. He wants you. And he gave Jesus to say, this is your foundation. Because on the cross, though he never reviled, though he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, though he always blessed and always loved and always valued God over all of his gifts, he was treated as if he committed all the evil you and I did, as if he reviled, as if he cursed, as if he thought God's gifts and his creation was better than him and more satisfying than him. He did all that so you would know, no matter what comes your way, you are supremely blessed by the work of God's son. No matter what comes your way, that is the best blessing God could possibly give to you because what is better than his son? The source of all joys and all satisfaction and all gifts, he gave you himself. See, the only way you could ever love people who wrong you and bless those who curse you is when you're consistently aware and refreshed of God's unfailing love and blessing to you. You can only bless those who are tarnishing your name if you genuinely believe you have a better name from God. They can think what they want about me. They can have that. And so long as I have God, so long as I'm his son and his daughter, I have all the blessing that I need. And would I want those gifts? Absolutely, but they're not the source of my contentment and my joy and my meaning and my purpose in life. This is why in the same psalm that Peter's quoting from, right before his quote, there's this famous plea from David to all of us. He says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. Blessed, blessed is the man, is the woman who takes refuge in him. He says, will you just taste and see for yourself? Will you just see that he's good? Will you just take refuge in him and see there's more blessing with him than there's apart from him? And there, I know there are so many of you who it's been a while since you have tasted and you have seen for yourself that he's good. And maybe you've never known the blessing of taking refuge and finding sanctuary in him. And I want you to know there is nothing required to taste and see that he's good other than trust. You don't have to get right you don't need to prove yourself. You need to clean yourself up so one day he will know you're worth it. You'll, his love is so great, you'll never be worth it. That's what makes it spectacular. So if that's you, I want you to taste and see that he's good. I want you to trust when he says in Christ your sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. When he says you're free, you're free. When he says walk this way where it costs and you lose, we walk that way because there's more blessing with him than apart from him. Whether it's the first time or the millionth time, 
he proves to be this refuge and sanctuary of strength and comfort and security and satisfaction. Don't miss out on him. Don't use him to get his things. And I'm praying and I hope that you're able to taste and see that he's better than everything else. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, help us not to wiggle out from underneath what you're doing. God, whatever you're stirring in us, whatever you're challenging in us, whatever you're encouraging in us, whatever you're saying to us from your word right now, God, whatever that is, help us not to squirm out from underneath it. Help us to sit in this moment, God, with you and recognize all the ways we are more worried about getting your gifts than about knowing you. God, give us wisdom right now to see, to see clearly how those things will let us down, how those things will prove faithless to us, how those things will not satisfy like they once did, how those things, God, they're not as good as you. And God, for all the ways we failed you, we're relying on the fact that you love us because you love us that you love us and you showed us, you gave us your son so that I never have to worry and I never have to fear if you have my good in mind. Even when your word and your ways call me to sacrifice and call me to lose, you're doing it to give me superior joy. That even when obedience feels like death, I have Jesus as our example and he is at the right hand of you, exalted, proving You bless those who trust your name. Oh God, help us taste and see that you're good. Help us be blessed men and women who take refuge in you. God, help us give you everything tonight. Not because we've been faithful, but because God, you are. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's sing together.